welcome. It is PNN. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. It is Sunday, July 25, 2021, and we have an entire show for you tonight. We have in conversation the former Congressman Alan Grayson on the March for Medicare for All. He uh, participated in the speaking portion of the event yesterday here in Orlando, and I can't wait to expand on some of the thoughts that he shared with everyone yesterday. We also have Janine Maloff tonight with the COVID files. Uh, This is the Justice Report looking at different kinds of lawmaking, bad kinds of lawmaking that is starting to pop up all over the country, especially in Florida and Missouri, that seems to be sponsored by Alec, that seems to also be, or for sure, will endanger people's lives. So she's got that coming up. Um, Had a lot of fun talking to Alan Grayson. He is my go-to guy for understanding things that happen in Washington, understanding how it really works in or on Capitol Hill. You know, he's running for Senate against Marco Rubio here in Florida. And so hopefully we will see the great Alan Grayson return to Congress uh, I'm going to share some some thoughts about things before we get into the interview and uh, and a short disclaimer. So we'll be right back with that. Disclaimer, I have known and worked with Alan Grayson for a couple of his campaigns, and I've also freelanced with him on, uh, with his law firm, and I'm currently working with him on his Senate race, so I am not an objective observer here, and even if I didn't have a professional relationship with him, I still wouldn't be an objective observer or objective reporter because I happen to think that he's one of the best members of Congress, the best lawmakers that I've seen in my lifetime. He's right up there with Paul Wellstone for me. And I happen to firmly believe that we need to get him back in Washington doing the work of the people because there are too few people in Washington who are there to actually do work. Now, we touched on this in the interview about, because I want, I wanted to get his take on why it is that it seems like nothing happens in Washington. So we expend all of this energy during the campaigns and you know, we spend money and we volunteer and we get involved like we're supposed to do. And then when people are actually in Congress and nothing happens, none of the stuff that was talked about during the campaign, nothing happens, even when we control all three branches of uh, government, I think we deserve an explanation. And I 
personally, I need some help in understanding what is going on here. Because they make it sound so easy during the campaign. And then, you know, things happen. They get elected and we hear, oh, we're not voting as a block. So, okay, so the progressives aren't going to vote as a block. And and uh, we hear, oh, we're not going to push Medicare for all because that'll kill Medicare for all. And that sounds a thousand percent different than what was said on the campaign trail. So there has to be a reason for it. There has to be an explanation. And Alan has come closer than anyone else in filling that in for me. So I think that uh, I think that we covered that extremely well i also want to give people the contact information if you want to support the campaign go to grayson for senate.org and four is f-o-r spelled out go to grayson for senate.org and you can support the campaign there there will be a lot more coming in the uh upcoming months especially as we get through uh through summer and into fall uh everyone's just getting their feet wet right now and alan is no different now i want to say a bit about the march for medicare for all in orlando yesterday before we get started rick ashby was the volunteer here in Orlando who put things together. He did a fabulous job, and I think that people really need to uh, send him some appreciation. Uh, There was a a lot of work that went into that event. It was well attended. Uh, It was a sweltering hot Jaloon, Jaloon, July day, Jaloon. That's going to be my new name for a jello snack jaloon i'm just gonna leave that in there jaloon maybe that'll be the name of my new podcast at some point all right without further ado let's just hop right in to the interview please enjoy this uh alan grayson in conversation from earlier today And I'm here with former Congressman Alan Grayson, uh, someone I am honored to call a friend of mine. And I want to follow up on the March for Medicare for All with somebody who has a lot of experience with lawmaking in that in that area and get his thoughts on uh, how we go forward as a movement. So, Alan, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you. So there is a lot of concern and uh, consternation uh, amongst people that I interact with in political spaces about how we get things done in Congress and specifically about Medicare for all. And where there had been consensus, almost consensus on the left behind Bernie's movement for Medicare for all. Now there's a a little bit of a feeling of abandonment and there's a feeling of stagnation. And I know you're somebody who excelled at getting things done in Congress. So I wanted to get your take on that and ask you, uh, how would you approach this problem or how will you approach this problem as you get back in Congress? Well, uh, first you have to recognize that most people who run for office in both parties don't actually want to accomplish anything. They just want to be something. 
they want to be a city councilman, they want to be a mayor, they, they want to they want to be a state representative, they want to be a member of Congress. They just want to be that thing, and uh, that is true for oh, I would say ninety percent of the people whom I met while I was in Congress, uh, all the way up to that level and beyond. Uh, it's all for most people a form of self promotion, and when you have people like that who are predominant. Uh, among elected officials, uh, you're not going to get anything significant done. Uh, it, the, 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 there, um, there's no way to overcome the inertia in the system when everybody's a snollygoster. Have you ever heard that term before? No, I haven't. I, I love it, though. What is it? A snollygoster was what people in Massachusetts used to call this mythical character that was half bird and half reptile that didn't actually exist. And then in the 1800s, the newspaper uh, editor took the term and applied it to politicians who run for office just to get into office. They're neither fish nor fowl, if you will. Um, they don't really care about politics. They don't really care about uh, governance. They don't really care about issues. They don't care about what's good for whom. They just care about self-promotion. They're snollygosters. And uh, politics from then until now over the span of uh, more than 100 years, hasn't changed. Uh, it's still full of people who simply want the job. And uh, we, we give people too much latitude in, in that regard, particularly on our side, particularly on our side. On the other side, you, you at least have to mouth some kind of fealty to Fox News, Donald Trump principles, and, and be part of the collective effort uh, to implement them. Uh, on our side, you, you don't even have to do that. I mean, time after time after time, we see people running for office, including up to the level of President of the United States, promising nothing to anybody. And we let them get away with that. Uh, so what we end up with is a Congress and a Senate, and even sometimes a White House, that's occupied by snollygosters. It feels like, too, that the snollygosters have snollygosting uh, apprentices, uh, people who actually get in the way of, uh, you know, voters who are demanding more. Oh, you can't hear me? Shit. How's that? Can you hear me now? That's better. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, Sorry about that. Uh, it, It seems like there are not just snollygosters, but snollygoster apprentices, that there are people who <laughs> who work on behalf of snollygosters to make sure that nobody knows that, uh, that, that people are unhappy with the snollygosters. So I, I think that's where a lot of people in the, on the left and in the Democratic Party get frustrated uh, as they're doing work because they keep getting blocked by, by people who are trying to protect um, certain interests. They're their personal political heroes in, in effect. Yeah. The, the, the part of the democratic party, that's the part that actually wants to uh, accomplish specific things is the progressive part of the party and the rest of the part of the party doesn't share the same sentiments. So uh, throughout the democratic party, there are people who are just like you're describing and the, the frustration level gets to be high and isn't ameliorated by the fact that this is the way it's been uh, from time immemorial because it doesn't change the fact that progressives have a progressive spirit and they want to see progress and they don't want to take no for an answer. 
I always felt that way. And that's one reason why I was able to get so much done. I just plowed ahead time after time after time. Anytime I saw any opportunity to pass a progressive law, I went ahead and I took it and concentrated on that. And that's the reason why I was able to pass 121 progressive laws in four years, more than anybody else in Congress. But nevertheless, you have to realize that the overwhelming majority of people like that, even many progressives, or are progressives in name only, they're Pinos. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they, th- what they really want is they just want the job. Uh, and and that's, that's unfortunate. Uh, that, that it, uh, the only answer to this problem is simply to elect people who are different. Um, it's to put in office people who are committed to advancing particular agendas, uh, and specifically the progressive agenda. How hard would it be uh, to have candidates commit to Medicare for all if they're going to earn the support of the vast base of the Democratic Party? How hard would that be? Uh, What happens is that time after time after time, we're fooled into supporting candidates because of their supposed electability, uh, no matter what uh, blemishes or lack of accomplishments they may have. And uh, that's a trick that gets played on us that's much like what Chomsky described when he was talking about the manufacturing of consent. What, what happens is that you get fed a certain line um, and you buy into it, and therefore you nullify any sort of positive effect that you can have on the system. Um, it is not true anywhere in the country that it hurts a candidate to be in favor of Medicare for all. Uh, so why not? Why not make that a litmus test the same way that uh, de facto being pro-choice is a litmus test for being a Democratic Party candidate virtually everywhere in the country? Uh, let's just this one stand for something that might actually make people's lives better. And, you know, there's it seems to me and maybe it's just an illusion. Maybe this has been every generation, but it seems to me that since uh since Reagan, uh, uh, especially during the uh, Clinton administration, there was an active effort to not get things done in Congress. Like, like it really happened it, when I started noticing it also about the time I was coming of age and getting interested in politics was around Whitewater was, uh, um, you know, it just seemed like like they started on Whitewater immediately and that uh, created a an excuse to not get anything else done. And, and I don't feel like we've moved away from that very much. The question is, can we collect enough power and is there enough urgency to the situation in order to get things accomplished? Mm -hmm. Uh, Due due to both things temporarily coming true. The fact that the democratic party as a party now has uh, a majority of the Senate majority of the House and, and the White House, because of that, things like a $300 a month payment to parents uh, for their children became possible. Um, a large new federal employment benefit to gig workers became possible, and, and so on. Uh, the, the situation compelled some kind of response, and uh, the people who had been pushing and pushing and pushing all along for a positive response were able to take advantage of that opening in the Overton window. The Overton window cracked open for just a little while. 
and that and that's the way that things actually get done. Um, in the Clinton administration, the Overton window slammed shut uh, when Clinton lost his uh, majority in the House. And after that point, it became pointless uh, to even talk about making progress. He couldn't uh, crack that nut uh, in any way. Now, you know, you look at what happens on the other side. Reagan was able to get his tax cuts through. Trump was able to get his tax cuts through. Um, just because your party doesn't control uh, a House of Congress doesn't necessarily mean it's completely impotent, um, unless you have to be the Democratic Party, it seems, in which case it is true, and it's completely impotent. Um, the same thing happened, of course, with Obama. I don't think that it was any of the, the sort of like personal scandals and the politics of personal destruction that kept um, so many Democratic uh, presidents since Johnson from actually getting a lot of things done. I think it's more the fact that the Republicans are implacable, that there's no way to, no apparent way to make a deal with them. We're seeing that right now with the infrastructure deal. Um, it's all a matter of stall, stall, stall. I mean, they're hoping that um, they can somehow pick off one of the Democrats like Manchin and uh, get to flick or flip or there's an unfortunate um, life event uh, for one of the Democrats uh, that makes them unla- unable to continue to serve or whatever. They're stalling in the hope they can pick up a 51st vote like they did when um, Edward Kennedy died. And uh, then they'll just shut it all down. And, and that's the way that they play the game. Uh, wh- when they're in charge, they find ways to intimidate and bully the Democrats to passing the, the Republican agenda. And when we're in charge, we don't have the psychological need or ability to do things like that. So we end up with nothing. Kind of on the same subject, do you have thoughts about filibuster reform, given these small margins that that we have in the Senate, which seemed that it seems like we're going to be having small margins one way or the other for quite some time? Not necessarily. I think the Republicans actually might be able to break through. I, I bite my tongue by saying like that because I don't want to, you know, give that uh, a hostage to faith. But I'll, I'll tell you that if you if you look at the nationwide map and the fact that uh, California gets two senators just like Wyoming does, you realize that there's a built-in advantage for Republicans of around six senators. So if the nationwide uh, vote for senators was exactly equal, it would be roughly 56 Republicans and, and 44 Democrats. Um, and that's very, very daunting. Uh, that shows what a special accomplishment it was for Democrats to get to 60 temporarily uh, at the beginning of the Obama administration and how sad it was that we didn't push things any further than we actually did during that nine-month period when uh, things were feasible. And Republicans knew exactly what they were doing. That's why Al Franken's seat wasn't occupied for months and months and months and months while they contested an election with, in an nonsensical manner with Norm Coleman. Um, but in, in, in any event, the, you know, the, 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 the filibuster makes it um, truly impossible um, to, to get anything that's meaningful done in the Senate. As I, I said recently, the greatest deliberative body in history uh, does nothing these days but deliberate. Uh, nothing actually gets accomplished. They, they still have to um, take a stab at um, putting judges in, in their positions because otherwise, you know, how are you going to fill the prisons if you don't have any judges? 
But uh, leaving that one function aside, the Senate really has um, ground to a halt no matter who is in charge. And we're seeing, you know, some kind of experimentation done with reconciliation. We'll see how far that can be pushed. But um, anybody who defends the filibuster, including the president of the United States, is basically afraid of democracy. Um, it, for When we have the power of majority and we try to push through things that improve people's lives, we should be able to do that. And if the price we pay for that is that when the other side has majority, they do stupid things that discredit themselves, so be it. I mean, uh, democracy is trial and error. Uh, if they want to push stupid legislation uh, with a 51-seat majority in the Senate, go for it. And um, they'll see how well that suits people over time. Um. Given that, do you do you see now? Now I remember when when you were in Congress, you kept your uh, your supporters very close, and it, it seemed like like uh, like we were part of uh, your overall project when when you were in Congress. You were always making appeals to uh, folks on the mailing list and to regular folks, and I think that. That uh, part of what I'm seeing that is causing people heartburn. I mean, it's it, it's like really it's ruining friendships, and <laughs> I'm sure people have gotten divorced over it at this point. But uh, do you think that there is a role for rank and file people to be to to be engaged and stay engaged in in, in activism for their issues? In other words. Does it make sense, and how would you use uh, uh, the the movement for Medicare for All once you're in Congress? Because it seems like everyone else just dropped it like a hot potato, dropped us like a hot potato. I think people don't understand the actual impact that a true movement has uh, on the minds of elected officials. Um, And the best example of that was my no-cuts petition. I wrote out by hand a petition saying that I pledge to oppose every uh, type of cut for Social Security, Medicare, or Medicaid. Um, that was the what was later called the Grace and Takano petition, although I'm the one who wrote it. Um, and that petition gathered 4 million signatures. Uh, I personally took those 4 million names and handed them on a flash drive to President Obama, um, as well as uh, John Boehner. And the, the result of that uh, was that we avoided what had been planned as cuts to Social Security. Now, this is the chain CPI issue where they were going to cut the cost of living adjustments uh, for people who were Social Security beneficiaries. And we stopped that. Uh, the, the White House actually went out of its way to make it clear after those petitions were delivered uh, that they weren't going to go in that direction anymore. They had announced that that was their policy, and they took it back. And they took it back ahead of time because they, before the budget was even announced the following year, they put in a statement saying that the change CPI would not be in the budget. So that kind of mass mobilization works. Um, I think it's taking much longer, but I think it is over time working on net neutrality, which is a, uh, an online organizing uh, petition that 
uh, I think reached 7 million signatures. And I think that the reason why we ended up with two impeachments of Donald Trump, to be honest, um, even though certain people had misgivings about impeaching Trump because they thought that he would turn it against them, um, certain feckless people, I should say, uh, 10 million people signed the petition to impeach Donald Trump. Uh, That definitely had a focus uh, on the minds of people in charge of the Democratic Party who actually ended up making these decisions. And I'll give you some other examples as well. Uh, Some of the bills that I wrote, I wrote more bills than any other member of Congress. Not just passed more laws than any other member of Congress. I actually wrote more bills than any other member of Congress. And um, some of those bills came directly from comments on our Facebook page. I I can show you examples of those. Uh, People have very good ideas. I don't have any monopoly myself on what's good policy, what I think of myself. And I think we need a collective effort to push forward uh, everyone's best ideas. I'll, I'll give you yet another example. Um, I, when the Republicans were denying that anybody ever died because they were uninsured on this theory that you could always go to the emergency room, um, I said, that's not right. So we created a website called namesofthedead.com. And we had thousands and thousands of people come to the website and explain how somebody in their lives had died uh, because they had no health insurance. Thousands of people did that. And I took their stories and I read them on the floor of the House to show the Republicans that they were wrong. And these are the kinds of things that actually end up making a difference in real life. Um, if not for that, we might not have had Obamacare. Uh, somebody had to put steel into the spines of the Democrats. And honestly, I think that was me. So the, the, the opportunities are there. You just have to be creative about it. And um, you have to be able to demonstrate to people that their efforts do make a difference. I remember that. And uh, it, it's... It's just a shame. It's a shame that it's that it's missing now. And uh, and one of the things that I'm looking forward to as your campaign progresses is to see some more of this energy and some more of this positivity uh, communicated, you know, with within the party and and within the left, because that's you're absolutely right. That's that's where the energy is, and that's where a lot of the good ideas come from. Is from just normal, normal folks. Um, last question. Yeah, I mean, listen. If two heads are better than one, imagine two million. Right. <laughs> Very well said. Um, last question. You, you've got one of the things that I've that I've always just uh, appreciated about your approach is you're not the kind of uh, member of Congress who has a narrow uh, sense of what needs to be done. So like some people uh, might think that they're just there to work on financial regulations or, or that's their lane. Or, um, maybe other people's are, uh, other folks are more interested other members of Congress are more interested in just healthcare, but you, you spend a lot of time on foreign policy. And if I remember correctly, uh, there, there was a, there was a moment where Obama was getting ready to 
there was some hesitancy and and he was getting ready to uh take action against syria and it seems like you stepped in and uh kind of brought the cavalry am i remembering that right uh so so just generally just refresh my memory how all that went down with the with the syria uh situation well, because of the belief that the, the, the Syrians had uh, used uh, poison gas, uh, which is an extremely debatable proposition, particularly the notion that it was ordered to be used. Uh, and I'm not going to get into classified information, but I think you can, you can guess um, that those, those sorts of things get debated um, by the intelligence community at great length. Um, because of a, a, a what appeared to be a use of poison gas that, it, that might have been ordered by Assad, uh, the president wanted to launch a third war in the Middle East uh, and inflame uh, Syria uh, with uh, American weaponry the same way that we had occupied Iraq and, and Afghanistan um, and potentially go further than that. Um, so the president came to Congress and asked for legal authority to do that because the War Powers Act exists and because we had um, no personal harm directly to U.S. citizens because of that attack and because there was no treaty that applied to the situation. So the president said, I want Congress to authorize a war with Syria on the basis of um, this chemical attack. Well, um, I very patiently pointed out uh, that that would have made things worse. Um, When you attack a base, a military base, that has chemical weapons in it, uh, there's a good chance that you will end up with the gas being taken by terrorists, uh, with the gas uh, exploding and rolling across the landscape, um, the notion that you can do some kind of precision attack on uh, three or four people or however many people it is who control the gas, leaving the gas unattended, um, and, and then somehow or other take control of it is very hypothetical. Um, so I explained that um, despite the fact that we don't want poison gas being used anywhere in the world by anybody, uh, whatever the circumstances, nevertheless, there are um, no reasonable military options that would make the situation better and very likely would make the situation worse. And that's something that uh, no other member of Congress is willing to explain, um, literally no other member of Congress. So I went on nationwide TV seven times in one day. I did 40 media interviews in three days and explain to people that uh, what was being contemplated would make the situation worse. Um, And based upon what I knew, including classified information, I was very confident that I was correct about that. And that what we were contemplating would have been very, very foolish and imprudent um, and could have ended up with a true, true disaster, a worldwide disaster. So as as a result of that, um, we won. Uh, the president never forced it to a vote in Congress because based upon the polls moving every single day further and further away from the president's position, he knew that the vote would go against him. 
So after a few weeks, uh, everybody just moved on from it, and we avoided war with Syria. Uh, that that's what happened. And um, I have certain scars uh, on my political psyche as a result of disagreeing with the president of my party. Um, did not, you know, further my political career to be the one to go out and say that war with Syria was um, lunacy. Uh, but nevertheless, we won, and we did not take that fatal step that would have endangered the lives of thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people if we had done that. That really stands out to me as uh, unique. It, it, I, I can't recall another time that I've seen uh, a lawmaker go out on a limb like that and swim against the 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 tide okay two two metaphors right after each other that was bad but you know what i mean the and and those uh emotional scars from going up against the president uh everybody was aware of that at the time i i I remember being just acutely aware of oh my gosh alan grayson is actually doing this these these uh, airstrikes might not happen, and uh, that's not going to be easy, you, you know, to in terms of interrelations with uh, within the party. But that's one of the things that I think people have always appreciated about you is that um, uh, what the rank and file wants isn't always, and sometimes hardly ever, exactly what the uh, institutional Democratic Party wants. Uh, so, so we're down here, and we're saying, "Hey, we we need more help, and we'd rather there not be another war." Uh, and things like that, and uh, it, it's very hard to get heard without uh, a proven progressive champion like yourself in Congress. So I thank you so much for joining us today. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners with in terms of uh, uh, a pitch for uh, the upcoming election year? Yeah, certainly. Uh, but first, let me add one thing to what I said. Um, it's scary uh, to witness the other the utter vacuousness of thinking and how easily people in charge are misled uh, in situations like that. Uh, and th- I'm not talking about when Donald Trump was in charge. That was a four year long nightmare for sure. There's nothing like uh, stupidity from the top, but, but in fact, even when other people were in charge, uh, the, the fact is that uh, it's a very irrational decision-making process on any issue. That was, I think, particularly true with the idea of starting a third war in the Middle East. But regardless of that, the fact is that um, the, over and over again, what you see is sloppy, lazy thinking, um, particularly, unfortunately, on our side. Um, and, and therefore, that compromises our ability to get things done. Uh, we need uh, better Democrats in the House, in the Senate. We need better Democrats, not just more Democrats, but better Democrats who act upon principle uh, rather than acting reflexively or um, w- without rational, clear thinking. Uh, but to, to, to get on to your question, I'm hoping that people who listen to this will go to the website, uh, graysonforsenate.org, and make a contribution. 
the, the, what we're doing here is trying to run a substantive campaign on the basis of what's good for people. Every lobbyist in Washington, D.C. is against Medicare for all. I am for Medicare for all. How am I supposed to finance this campaign unless people who are for Medicare for all and people who are for progress come together and do it? I cannot go to the billionaires and I cannot go to the lobbyists and ask them for uh, $21 million the way that Marco Rubio did to a single supporter when he was running for president. That's not the way this works. We have to overcome the resistance in the system to people who simply want to do the people's business. And the only way to do that is for us to come together. Uh, it's true, the people united will never be defeated, and therefore we have to be united. So I'm hoping that people go to the website, uh, graysonforsenate.org, and make a contribution and show how much they care to make the world a better place. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alan Grayson. uh, And we will be seeing a lot more of you in the future. All right. Thank you. And hang on for Janine Moloff coming right up with the Justice Report. And we're here with Janine Moloff this week on the Justice Report with the COVID files. No, Karen, you do not have the right to infect others. So, Janine, tell us, this sounds like there's a lot of moving pieces. What's going on here? Dory. Oh, there are a lot of moving pieces. So, yes, this is the COVID files. This is the episode, No, Karen, you do not have a right to infect others with this possible death sentence. Or you could also call it, otherwise known as GOP operatives behaving very badly. So we have DeSantis in Florida. We also have the GOP of Missouri, the GOP in Texas, and other GOP-controlled states that are mysteriously creating very conspicuously identical laws which place public health in danger as they, among other things, revoke masking requirements in public as well as social distancing and so on. So we're going to start with just a couple of laws. The first one is the one in Florida, then the one in Missouri. So from the Associated Press back in May of 2021, you know, Governor DeSantis in Florida signs this law preempting local COVID edicts um, written by Bobby Kena Calvanis. And this law, as Floridians know, suspends all of all of the remaining COVID-19 restrictions that were um, issued by local municipalities throughout the state. And it does more than that, though. The law that DeSantis signed into effect also gives the governor sweeping powers, quote, sweeping powers to invalidate local emergency measures during the pandemic, including mask mandates, limitations on business operations, and the shuttering of schools, end quote. And this is truly frightening, because with the Delta variant, the Delta variant uh, is a bit different from the first issuance, because the Delta variant not only is hitting children hard, and children under 12 can't be vaccinated yet, but it's killing children. So for Ron DeSantis to do this, especially involving our schools, again, special kind of evil. But he also signed a pair of executive orders that 
implements things immediately so that these executive orders said that any existing COVID measures that local governments push to protect their citizens, like requiring masks, quote, would be abolished immediately, end quote. And to quote DeSantis, quote, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I think this creates a structure that's going to be a little bit more respectful, I think, of people's businesses, jobs, schools, and personal freedom, end quote. And my remark is, really, Governor? So did you miss the memo stating that the Delta variant is hitting children more rapidly than adults and it's killing other people's kids? Guess not. So this is what he's pushed. And especially Democrats in Florida have called it out as a power grab against local governments, which it is. All right. You know, it's, it's truly ironic that these GOPers love to claim that they want limited government. But then they do the exact opposite when basically grabbing power for themselves is the issue of the day. And then there were some mayors throughout Florida that called out DeSantis. St. Petersburg Mayor Rick Kreisman uh, put it quite concisely, quote, to be clear, cities like St. Pete, Tampa, Orlando, Miami, and Miami Beach saved Florida and the governors behind throughout this pandemic. Can you imagine if each citizen had been led by Ron DeSantis? How many lives would have been lost? What would our economy look like today? End quote. And Kreisman tweeted this, and he's right on the money on this. And they go into some statistics, but this law really does codify that in Florida, the government, the governor can preempt local governments trying to protect at least the people within their own municipality. It's effectively nullifying the right to local government. That's really what it is. And placing all the power at the state house, the state legislature and the governor's mansion. And, you know, eventually, hopefully some smart lawyers will come to their senses and realize that they can challenge us in court and DeSantis is going to get his, his butt handed to him. We can only hope. Um, but the new law also would ban businesses from requiring patrons to show proof of vaccinations in order to get service. And my question to Mr. DeSantis is, isn't that a First Amendment violation? You mean to tell me that these private business owners or the wait staff, whatever, they don't have a right to even ask? I mean, if you're worried about privacy issues, then, you know, you can just refuse to answer. But Ron DeSantis does not have a right to nullify First Amendment rights in Florida as well. So DeSantis has really been angry about federal mandates, um, you know, including uh, the distribution of vaccines to the oldest people in the state ahead of essential workers, you know, yada, yada, yada. You know, basically DeSantis doesn't want the feds dictating to him, but the hypocrisy is laughable. I mean, he's fine, though, dictating to local municipalities. So Charlie Crist, who is a former Florida governor who is expected to challenge DeSantis in the upcoming election for the governor's mansion, tweeted the following, quote, Governor DeSantis failed to lead during the pandemic, leaving local officials, officials as the last line of defense against the pandemic, forcing them to make hard the hard decisions to save lives, end quote. And he's right. So now we move into my home state of Missouri. And here's the, um, this is from the Missouri Independent. Tessa Weinberg wrote this. The headline is Missouri Senate renews push to bar vaccine passports and limit local health orders. And that was this past May. Now, this 
particular piece of legislation in Missouri was referred to as House Bill 271. It has since passed the GOP-controlled legislature with some amendments and was signed on by our GOP Trump governor, Mike Parsons. This is the same governor that refused to implement a mask mandate statewide, even at the worst of the pandemic. Um, so this is HB 271. It was sponsored by the House Speaker Pro Tem, John Wyman. He's a Republican. Um, it should be mentioned that John Wyman, in his main job, because legislators here in Missouri, it's a part-time job, John Wyman has a master's degree in public, in, I'm sorry, John Wyman has a master's degree in health administration, ironically, and he sells mal, medical malpractice insurance to hospitals and doctors. So I haven't figured out if there's a conflict of interest yet, but it, it looks a little suspicious. But House Speaker Pro Tem John Wyman pushed this bill, okay? And it was supported by State Senator Bob Onder, who is a rabid anti-choice uh, advocate. Senator Bob Onder is also Dr. Bob Onder, who's, again, more irony, his specialty is as an allergist and an immunologist. And he pushed this bill also, or it's Senate version, Senate Bill 12. Um, and once again, this would basically limit what local municipalities in Missouri could do in terms of protecting citizens within their own little town in terms of any sort of public health considerations, whether it's a masking requirement, social distancing, a vaccine passport, which we don't have in Missouri anyway, um, but they're both doing this. And, you know, Dr. Onder, and I'm going to keep calling him this, was quoted as saying this, he offered an amendment. He said this amendment embodies a compromise that I think most everyone would agree with. Okay. I'm confused by that. I don't think I would want an immunologist that is so sloppy. Does it mean that when you go to the medical practice he shares with other partners that the staff there aren't necessarily vaccinated and they're not masking? I don't know. Uh, but I think that in the middle of a pandemic, Dr. Andre should worry less about women's um, private parts and more about the pandemic, especially since he's an immunologist. So this is the hypocrisy that's going on here. Um, they also quoted in this, in this particular article that once again, excuse me, uh, ran in the Missouri Independent. They also quoted um, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas. And they also talked about how the governor of Texas did usurp local officials' um, right to pass ordinances in their own little municipality and, quote, often prohibited them from issuing restrictions stricter than those at the state level, according to the Star-Telegram. And they quoted Governor Abbott, quote, we hope that our legislation will cross the finish line to your desk, but with the uncertainty of the legislative process, we feel it is time that immediate action be taken. We ask you that you as the leader of the state give our citizens their freedoms back by removing the remaining uh, restrictions imposed. Oh, I'm sorry, I take that back. Let me back up a little bit here. There was a letter sent to the Missouri governor, Mike Parson, excuse me, 
and it was uh, circulated between Representative Jim, so I stand corrected, back up. There was a letter sent in Missouri to Missouri Governor Mike Parson, and it was uh, circulated between Representative Jim Murphy, who was a Republican, and almost 80 lawmakers who were urging the Missouri governor to lift any remaining health restrictions. And they, they um, spoke about Texas as the prime example. And so the letter goes on to quote to Governor Parsons that, you know, we ask that you as the leader of the state give our citizens their freedoms back by removing the remaining restrictions imposed on them, end quote. So now we have the stupidity of Texas imported to Missouri, even though we have plenty of stupid GOPers right here. So, you know, Parson declared that Missouri was fully open for business in mid-June. He let the state's social distancing order expire, and that was the uh, limit that that was that state social distancing order limited large gatherings and the capacity for some businesses. Um, now, earlier on in the pandemic, Governor Parsons of Missouri left those decisions to local officials, but the GOP-controlled legislature wouldn't have that. So, under HB 271 that was the bill that actually became law, local jurisdictions were forbidden from requiring residents to provide proof of vaccination to access transportation or public accommodations. Now, it should be noted that a lot of these legislators that control the Missouri, the Missouri House and Senate come from either suburban or exurban or rural communities. And Missouri is a highly segregated state. The communities of color that are here reside in St. Louis City, St. Louis County, and Kansas City, Missouri. Those three areas have public transportation. The rest of the areas of the state do not. So this is aimed at these communities of color, in my opinion. This is Jim Crow 2.0, but only more vicious. Now, we have another article from the Missouri Times, which is a conservative paper published by Scott Vaughn, who's a GOP operative, where he's celebrating HB 271 being signed into law. Um, and Governor Parsons signed it. He's standing there with the Speaker Wyman and Senate handler, Senator Sandy Crawford. And to quote Parsons, Governor Parsons of Missouri, quote, this legislation I'm citing today requires local leaders to be more transparent in their reasoning and accountability for their decisions when it comes to public health orders. It also pro prohibits local publicly funded entities from acquiring a vaccine passport in order for residents to use public services. And while we encourage all Missourians to get vaccinated against COVID-19, it is not the government's job to force them, end quote. Well, first of all, the governor's wrong on that. The government, and we're going to talk about it in a minute, does actually have the right to mandate vaccines. We're going to talk about it a little bit. But, you know, once again, this law is just a piece of garbage. Um, the sponsor, Speaker Pro Tem uh, Wyman's, was quoted, quote, this has been a labor of love for me for the last three years to try and get the local government transparency bill passed in Missouri. Normally when we do omnibus bills, we're a little nervous about what's being added on that may not be necessarily be good, but we spent a solid week vetting through, and I can tell you those 23 amendments are solid local government bills, end quote. 
there is a certain level of moral bankruptcy where these people think it's a labor of love to basically uh, forbid local municipalities from protecting their own people because the state of Missouri, among other states, controlled by the GOP, has been criminally negligent when it comes to public health measures. And again, as I said, this includes public transportation, and public transportation is virtually non-existent in Missouri outside of St. Louis City, St. Louis County, and Kansas City, Missouri. And it's no small coincidence that the lack of public transportation is consistent with racially segregated housing patterns in the rest of the state. It could be argued that the ban, including public transportation, represents a racist attack on communities of color. Let's move on. From the local CBS affiliate in St. Louis, we have a surge in Delta variant cases in Missouri that outpaces our ability to treat anyone for anything. And we're in this position because we have a GOP governor who refused to implement a mask mandate coupled with a low vaccination rate. The vaccination rate in Missouri is about 38%. And the health experts from KMOV, they quote are saying that Missouri hospitals need to prepare for a second surge, expect rates higher than before. And this was updated uh, July 22nd, a few days ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. Excuse me, the Missouri Hospital Association wants state hospitals to prepare for more COVID-19 patients because of the Delta variant. Now, it's surging, and the association was quoted as saying, quote, be prepared because Delta moves quickly through communities and through infected patients with the progression to severe illness requiring ventilation or resulting in death occurring much more rapidly than with the previous variants of the virus and among younger patients. And this is what the Missouri Hospital Association said in their press release. Excuse me. <laughs> Data from the Missouri Health Department uh, documented that it took less than two months for hospitalizations in Missouri in the southwest region of the state, that is, to increase from 86 to more than 500 patients, and that's a 509% increase. It took nine months last year to basically have the same level of, of increase. And they say that the Delta variant increases transmission. It's, it's just incredibly dangerous, and now it's endangering our kids. So now we have another part of this moving puzzle. And this is what led to a reaction by the Missouri Attorney General as well. So in St. Louis City and St. Louis County, as reported by Nick Robertson in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, St. Louis City Mayor Tashara Jones and St. Louis County Executive Sam Page, Sam Page is also a doctor, have led this, they've renewed a mask mandate for everybody in St. Louis City and St. Louis County, regardless of vaccination status. Whether you're fully vaccinated, partially vaccinated, or unvaccinated, you go into a public place, you must be masked, or you will not be allowed admission. Now, it should be noted that in parts of St. Louis County, especially more affluent parts that were Trump supporters, the police really didn't enforce it, but they're trying. And, you know, they're picking up a lot of political opposition. And... This is because 
the Delta variant is sweeping through Missouri. So they're trying to be responsible. In response to this, our Missouri Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, along with a suburban mayor of Wildwood, Jim Bolin, and one of the city, St. Louis County Councilman, Tim Fitch, as well as Mark Harder, who's a Republican 7th District, all these people are voicing opposition. And what's happened is the Missouri Attorney General has filed a lawsuit. Now, it should be noted that our Attorney General, Eric Schmidt, was one of the Attorney Generals that filed some of those other frivolous lawsuits uh, backing up the big lie that there was all this election fraud. There wasn't. And Eric Schmidt is involved in it up to his eyeballs. So this is in reaction to HB 271. The St. Louis City Mayor and the St. Louis County Executive, they responded to the, um, well, let me back up a little bit, okay? So Eric Schmidt is the St. Louis County, I'm sorry, Eric Schmidt is the Attorney General for the state of Missouri. He's also running for the GOP nomination for the U.S. Senate seat that is going to be vacated by Roy Blunt. Okay. So on Friday, Eric Schmidt, the AG, um, announced that he plans to file a lawsuit this Monday, the same day that St. Louis City and County are having a press conference to announce the mask mandate. And he wants to block them. And to quote Eric Schmidt, quote, if the last six months have taught us anything, it's that when it comes to expansive, authoritative executive action, we have to fight back with everything we've got all the time. Wherever we see it, fight the fight. Our freedoms are on the line, end quote. To which Mayor Tashara Jones replied to Attorney General Schmidt, quote, our top priority is protecting the health, safety, and well-being of the people of St. Louis City and County. Nobody is surprised that the Attorney General plans to file yet another frivolous lawsuit to serve his own political ambitions. Bam! That sound you hear is the mic dropping. But Schmidt is going to file it. He doesn't care. You know, he doesn't care that other people's children might die. And now we get down to this. We have this frivolous lawsuit going on as well. Because, again, the GOP in Missouri are determined to basically forbid us from protecting ourselves. It's that simple. They truly are a death cult. And you gotta wonder why. So, and one of the theories circulating, and I don't know if it's true or not, one of the theories is that GOP planners want COVID to surge because it'll tank the economy. And if it tanks the economy, it'll tank Biden, and then they can more easily take over the House, the Senate, and the next presidential election. It's a theory. I don't know how true it is, but damn. So now we look at the subject of not only the right of municipalities to protect their own people, you know, a mask mandate. You wear a mask if you're vaccinated, fully vaccinated to protect others. You wear a mask to protect yourselves as well. You just, the minute this thing went airborne, your liberties went out. When these people talk about liberties, they fail to understand. We're not talking about liberties are privileges, okay, which fits with the Donald Trump GOP mindset. But what we're really talking about is rights, and with every right comes responsibilities. And see, these overage adolescents want to do what they want to do and, and never be held accountable for their actions. You know, while you have a right to make medical decisions for yourself, once this thing went airborne 
and it's deadly, then no, you don't have the right to infect others. You do have to comply. You will have to vaccinate fully, and you will have to mask. And if you don't want to do those two things, then fine. Then you don't have a right to be out in public. It's one or the other. That's just the way it is. So now I saw an article about can the government mandate that you get a vaccine because we've been told they can't over and over. And I saw two articles, one's from Newsweek from uh, May of 2020 and the other's from CNN. And it turns out that while the federal government might not be able to mandate it, state governments can. And it goes back to a 115-year-old um, case that was judged in the Supreme Court. And the case is Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And in this instance, in 1905, a citizen was arguing against taking um, a forced smallpox vaccine that it infringed on his personal liberty. I guess he'd rather be, I guess he would have rather had his liberty and wound up very dead from smallpox and infected others than take the vaccine. But the Supreme Court upheld the Cambridge Board of Health's authority to require the vaccination under the 10th Amendment that grants state police powers. And the Newsweek law quoted Lawrence Tribe, I'm sorry, quoted legal scholar Lawrence Tribe, who's a Carl M. Loeb University professor at Harvard Law School. And he said it's still a perfectly good law. And when uh, Professor Tribe was asked whether states can mandate vaccinations, he said yes. Okay. Sylvia Law, who is a law professor at New York University, um, said that it was really very simple for states to require vaccinations, and they've already done so. You know, students are required to be vaccinated to attend school, you know, for smallpox, measles, and so on. And she doesn't see why COVID would be any different. So we go on here. And Tribe was asked about, um, you know, the idea of some sort of exemption, okay? Because there are people that can't be vaccinated safely, though they're in the minority. And he said there should be a health exemption for those who could be put at risk. And actually, all 50 states grant those health exemptions for medical reasons. And that was as documented by the National Conference of State Legislatures. Uh, 45 states have religious exemptions, which I think is absurd. Okay, as I know, there's only one religion that I know of that prevents medical treatment, and that's Christian scientists. There is nothing else against medical treatment in any other religion. And tribes, Lawrence Tribe said that trying to argue a mandate exemption on a religious basis is would be kind of difficult because public health is going to be more important than their dubious religious rights, all right? And he also said that an argument that the mandate violated the 14th Amendment would have maybe a slightly better chance against a federal mandate, but he didn't think that could get through either. So Tribe was quoted as saying, quote, either way, I think the odds are if we came to the point politically where the federal government began mandating that people be vaccinated against COVID-19, it's almost certain there'd be some appropriate federal statute or regulation that would back it up. Okay, and then there's another article in CNN, and this was written by um, by Joan Biskupic, and she is a legal analyst and a Supreme Court biographer. 
In fact, Ms. Kupik is a graduate of the Georgia, Georgetown University Law School. She's covered the Supreme Court for 25 years. She's authored several books on the judiciary. Um, she was the editor in charge for legal affairs at Reuters and the Supreme Court correspondent for the Washington Post and USA Today. She was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Explanatory Journalism in 2015. So she's arguing this too. And when the U.S. Appeals Court ruled this, ruled um, back in April of 2020, as documented by CNN, that Texas could prevent physicians from performing abortions because of the pandemic, the judges leaned on that Jacobson decision in 1905, the idea being that that was a, an elective surgery and you're trying, it's more important to prevent a COVID outbreak and there are people more seriously ill. And I can see that. And so, you know, she goes in and explains about the Jacobson case. All right. And going back to that, you know, she explained that it was a 7-2 ruling in 1905. The Supreme Court did acknowledge the individual liberty rights, but they said that the, the states need to use police powers to handle a dire health emergency is the common good, and it's more important than, you know, your individual rights. Because we're talking about the difference between whether or not somebody does or does not contract something like smallpox or COVID and dies, versus somebody's right to, you know, COVID care and to throw a little tantrum. And the justices were right to be concerned back in 1905 because they were stopping ships that were and quarantining them that were arriving in American ports with cases of yellow fever. Okay. So to quote this, the opinion was, quote, whatever may be thought of the expediency of the statute, it cannot be affirmed to be beyond question in palpable conflict with the Constitution. Okay. Basically, I'm going to translate. They're just saying that the states need to save human life for the common good is more important than your preferred liberties. Okay. And Columbia University constitutional law professor was quote, uh, Jillian Metzger also said that government measures, they have to be based in public health needs and they have to suit specific problems. Um, and so, you know, Metzger was quoted as saying, quote, Jacobson stands for the proposition that government can take significant measures for public health, but it doesn't give a free pass to regulation. There has to be a real or substantial relation between problem and solution. Um, that makes perfect sense. Okay. They're not saying that the government can do anything they want. They're saying there's a legitimate reason for this. So I'm going to move on now. So we've got all these insane state laws that are basically putting the public's health in jeopardy still in the middle of a pandemic, a deadly pandemic. And according to the Jacobson decision, then, yes, the government does have a right to mandate vaccines. Okay? And their exemptions are already written in there. So all these histrionics have, against vaccines have no merit. So then you got to wonder, okay, in MedPage, there was an article written by Joyce Frieden, who's a Washington editor, and the headline is, states are passing laws that threaten public health, reports fines. Laws put wide swaths of the public at risk. Okay? And it's an important story, and it published June 3rd this year. So who's behind these nearly identical laws 
that place the public in danger. Okay, because whether it is the law in Florida, the law in Missouri, they all Texas, they all look a lot alike. How could these different states create laws that are carbon copies practically? And in an acronym, ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, our old friends. So let's talk about this article on MedPage. So there was a report from the National Association of County and City Health Officials, otherwise known as NACHO. From this point, I'll just call it NACHO. And to quote from the report, quote, in recent months, at least 15 state legislatures have passed or are considering measures to limit severely the legal authority of public health agencies and other states may consider such legislation in the future, hindering the ability of health departments to do their jobs and putting wide swaths of the public at risk, end quote. And it should be mentioned here in Missouri, another thing that HB 271 did, while private businesses and private employers are allowed to demand vaccines and masks, um, public health, including public agencies, public um, uh, venues, including public health departments staffed by actual physicians, are not allowed to. They're forbidden. you got to wonder about the intent, right? So they cite some examples of laws that are cited in this report. One law is prohibits the requiring mask in any situation, including where there are cases of active tuberculosis. Not kidding. Um, in North Dakota, there's a new law that will remove the authority of the state health office to require face mask or covering. Another law is blocking the closure of businesses necessary to prevent the spread of the disease, which really can create super, spread, super spreader venues. Uh, in Kansas, there's a new law. It takes away the governor's ability to close businesses during a public health emergency. Another uh, type of law is banning the use of quarantine. In Montana, there is a new law, and it basically prohibits any public health, uh, any, pro I'm sorry, in Montana, there's a public law that prohibits any local board of health emergency orders from separating individuals who aren't ill right now, but are believed to possibly be infected or exposed. So if you can't quarantine people who are, may not be ill, but they're believed to be infected or exposed, you've set the stage for a super spreader throughout the entire state. Keep in mind, with COVID, you can be asymptomatic. You can not look ill at all and still be able to spread it to others and give them a death sentence, okay? And there's no way of knowing who's who and what's what. So when they prohibit quarantine orders, you have no way to con control infection. You know, you just don't. Another law that would be um, that other laws in the report that states are trying is blocking state hospitals and universities from requiring vaccinations. That means dormitory students. In Arizona, there's a new law that um, prohibits the requirement that a person get vaccinated except in K through 12 settings, K through 12 school settings. And here's the kicker in the Arizona law. There are criminal penalties for violating the ban. Criminal penalties. You think it would be criminal to allow people that 
might be infected to knowingly infect others. But no, in Arizona, there's a criminal penalty for violating a ban that prevents state hospitals and universities from requiring vaccinations. Another type of law that's being uh, seen out there, according to this report, it also gives unilateral power to legislatures to stop public health, health actions. They cited Ohio. There's a new law. It would let the legislature rescind any order or action by the state health department or director of health to, quote, control or stop the spread of contagious or infectious disease. We have the same provision here in Missouri, by the way. Uh, the governor vetoed the law in Ohio and said that, quote, that this law, quote, strikes at the heart of local health department's ability to move quickly to protect the public from the most serious emergencies Ohio could face, end quote. Unfortunately, the Ohio governor's veto was overridden by the legislature, and the new law has already taken effect July, uh, as of June 23rd. So these are examples that the NACHA report has um, discovered. Okay, the National Association of County and City Health Officials. And this is where I found a little ditty about ALEC. In, the, in this report, the introduction mentions that these type of bills, quote, appears to be coordinated in part by the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC. Okay, end quote. And as we talked about ALEC before on the show, they are a bill mill. All right. They are conservative. They are GOP. They basically write just about every anti-worker, anti-health, anti-anything pro-corporate bill that you've seen that's emerged out of the states has, including standard ground laws, um, laws forbidding unionization, you name it. It was it was created by Alec, most likely or one of their affiliates, because they're like a big spider with tentacles. And to go on to the report, quote, Alec is advocating a slate of policy initiatives and model bills crafted to limit the authority of public health agencies and weaken their ability to protect the public's health. Many of the bills that have been or will be considered in a majority of states are based on Alec's model acts. And in some cases, the legislation uses language that is almost verbatim to Alex model bill, end quote. Now, the reporter from MedPage asked an Alex spokesman to comment on the report, and they did respond. Um, the Alex spokesman emailed back the following, quote, the NACHA report is incorrect in its assertion. Alex does not have model bills or any public policy initiatives crafted to limit the authority of public health agencies. In fact, Alec has no public health model policy of any sort on COVID-19. As a 501c3, we don't advocate policy. We have, however, empowered legislatures, legislators with fact-backed CDC information, discussions on vaccine safety, and touchless travel innovations. The spokesman also gave a link to Alec's model policy database, end quote. Well, there are enough watchdog groups, including SourceWatch, that have enough proof that what the Alex spokesman said, pile of lies. They do craft these bills. That's why they specified COVID-19. All right, so they can look like they're sort of telling the truth, but they're not. Um, so the executive director of the American Public Health Association, George Benjamin, M.D., 
said he found this trend in these laws very upsetting. Quote, we've been looking at what one needs to do about this because this is a big issue. And this was on a phone interview. Quote, Government, governmental public health is the only entity in the community that has legal authority to protect your health. The fact that this legal authority is being attacked, which we believe are for reasons that are unacceptable, concerns us. End quote. So then Dr. Benjamin was asked um, why he thinks these laws are being passed. And he said, quote, we think they don't understand what they're doing in their zeal to rein in things. It's like telling a bunch of doctors, we don't like the fact that you take out appendixes. So we're going to take away your authority to do surgeries. It's like going to a fire chief and saying, hey, we don't want you to have the authority to do inspections or close down a venue because it's a fire hazard. They're taking away core authorities that public health needs to do its work and undermining the work of government employees who are just doing their job, end quote. And then Dr. Benjamin added one other thing. Quote, you don't run an emergency by committee. It doesn't work that way. That's why the fire department and the police department have a chain of command. If you undermine those efforts, you're going to find that people won't have the authority they need and bad things will happen, end quote. So now we're going to come to our conclusion. It's lengthy because it was a lot of moving parts. So now we have the obstructionist GOP in conclusion, working feverishly to halt any reasonable and medically needed restrictions to curb COVID spread, especially the Delta variant. This is happening in multiple states, especially those with low vaccination rates like Florida and Missouri. Coupled this abusive legislative overreach with a constant feed of outright lies, lies of omission and innuendo coming from the rabid commentators on Fox, Newsmax and OAN, we have the perfect storm for a never-ending, deadly pandemic reaching genocidal proportions. In Florida, uh, excuse me, Governor DeSantis signed off on a law lifting all COVID restrictions. In Missouri, the GOP pushed a similar bill that also denies local municipalities the right to implement stronger protections during this pandemic than what the state demands. Keep in mind that St. Louis City and County are the major population centers in Missouri. Keep in mind that St. Louis City and St. Louis County are not imposing these restrictions on any other part of the state. Keep in mind that St. Louis City and St. Louis County are also the areas of the state where the majority of people of color reside. In Missouri, the home of Dred Scott, HB 271, now signed into law, is Jim Crow 2.0. To add insult to injury, we also had the disastrous vaccine rollout earlier this year. We witnessed as the GOP governor, Mike Parsons, assigned the associate director of public health the task of coordinating in Missouri where vaccine was sent. And we witnessed the wholesale criminal misdirection of that vaccine to little towns in Missouri's rural areas, towns like Leopold, Missouri. Now, Leopold, Missouri has a total population of 646 people, period per the 2020 census. Leopold received over 2,000 doses of vaccine one week, while St. Louis County received a grand total of 1,200 doses for approximately 1 million residents. This pattern of criminal misdirection continued for months as sickly Missourians traveled across the state to their appointments, some practically driving to the Kansas or Iowa borders. Essentially, the Missouri GOP made sure that St. Louis City and St. Louis County were virtual vaccine deserts. We made national news. Here's something else. It should be noted that the man tasked with coordinating vaccine distribution wasn't the director of public health. It was the associate director of public health. 
and now he's the interim director. His name is Robert K. Nodell. His educational background isn't in healthcare, it's in accounting. Mr. Nodell is also a long-time GOP operative. So Missouri's close to hiring a new state health director because ours left after much questioning. But then why was an unqualified accountant placed in charge of this task? So now it gets a little more complicated. We have a new law which represents legislative overreach as the Missouri GOP wants to restrict local governments from protecting their own people. We have a Missouri GOP of COVID Karens and Kens who shout from the rooftops that their liberties are being stolen from them. We have this new law which denies effective local representation and leaves us at the insane mercies of the rural GOP which controls Missouri. We have House Speaker Pro Tem John Wyman leading this foolish charge in a state with many who refuse to mask and refuse to vaccinate, leaving our medical facilities overrun and desperate. It should be known that John Wyman has a master's degree in health administration and sells medical malpractice insurance, ironically. We also have state senators like Bob Onder, Dr. Bob Onder, an allergist immunologist who knows better, but cares more about his GOP credentials than complying with accepted medical protocols for any airborne pathogen. In other words, mandatory masking in public. And mandatory masking is needed since we have no vaccine passport system allowed. People lie. We have our GOP Attorney General Eric Schmidt filing yet another frivolous lawsuit which aims to shut down the new mask mandate in St. Louis City and St. Louis County as we face escalating COVID cases of the more highly contagious and deadly, de deadly Delta variant. The Delta variant is spreading wide, wildly among unvaccinated children and killing them. Schmidt is ironically an avid pro-lifer. Attorney General Schmidt's lawsuit also coincides with his emerging campaign for the U.S. Senate seat of Roy Blunt, who is retiring. Our Attorney General is more concerned with feeding the red meat of ignorance to the GOP Trump base than performing his duty during a pandemic, which has killed over 600,000 fellow Americans to date. A pandemic of an airborne pathogen for which the only protection is one, mask in public, and two, get fully vaccinated. All of this dysfunction is bordering on the criminal. We have a GOP of Trump that is a death cult. These Trumpers claim they have a right to decide if and when they'll wear a mask in public and if and when they will ever vaccinate. They don't have that right. Regardless of their claims, no one has a right to transmit a deadly airborne pathogen to others because they don't like the inconvenience or discomfort of wearing a mask. They also don't have the right to be in public unvaccinated when a vaccine, when a vaccine is available. Remember, you can be an asymptomatic carrier showing no symptoms, but you can infect others with a possible death sentence. We know from the Jacobson's Supreme Court case that yes, the states can mandate vaccinations. We do so for measles and smallpox. Why not COVID? Why? What is the legitimate medical reason for this refusal that defies sanity? We are politicians like GOP Governor Chris Christie explained that anti-vaxxers don't want the government dictating to them. They're libertarian, fine. But we shouldn't have to mollycoddle these anti-vax people behaving like overaged adolescents. We don't have time to wait until they feel comfortable vaccinating. The delay could bring about another variant that the present vaccines won't protect against, and it's these anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers that, yes, 
are the 21st century version of typhoid Mary. It's evil enough that idiots comprising the GOP push this insanely dangerous path, but it takes a special kind of evil to promote and write templates of laws demanded by corporate, which also places profit above the right of right to life for its workers. A corporate bill mill known as ALEC is behind the majority of these anti-worker bills in the United States. And yes, these anti-worker bills include these new laws, which declare any meaningful attempt to protect workers, to protect public health from this airborne contagion we call COVID illegal. And that goes back to the lawyers of the massive uh, legal practice of Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. They house the major workhorse of ALEC, an attorney named Mark Behrens, who is a partner. Now, Alex denied that they create templates or crib notes for laws which would never survive a public vote. And yet, there's too much circumstantial evidence to ignore this allegation. According to SourceWatch, Alec is a corporate bill mill and not merely an educational group. There are no more education. In fact, Mark Behrens is forced to register as a lobbyist. And Alec is no more educational than a nasty syphilitic hooker training fresh meat. In fact, Alec's involvement in this public health menace will be the subject of another report. But frankly, it takes a special kind of moral bankruptcy to promote laws which place the public in mortal danger, especially our children. Every GOP politician, GOP attorney general pushing these dangerous laws from Donald Trump on down must be not only removed from office, they need to be civilly sued for criminal malfeasance, and then criminally charged with aiding and abetting this politically coordinated mass negligent homicide approaching what can only be called genocidal levels. If not for us, then for our children. And that's my report. And that is it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. We will do this all again next week. Take care. Take care.